Welcome to episode 186 of Speaking of Mysteries. I'm Nancy Clare, and today I'm joined on the podcast by Chad Dundas to talk about The Blaze, his new novel, due out from Putnam on January 21st. Welcome to Speaking of Mysteries, Chad. Hey, thanks so much for having me. I found The Blaze a compelling combination of story and character. So that makes me wonder which element came first, the character of Matthew or the story of a fire or a fire or two, I should say. Well, that's a great question. Um, I guess it was probably the character of Matthew because I had been thinking for a long time about the potential of writing a mystery about a character who had suffered some form of amnesia. And I work as a sports writer in my day job, and I cover combat sports like boxing and mixed martial arts. And unfortunately, one of the side effects of having that job is that you have to develop this very shallow uh, layman's knowledge of of various brain injuries. Uh, And so I've been thinking about trying to write about a character who had suffered a traumatic brain injury and therefore, you know, it had led to, to some memory loss on their part and kind of the potential that that could create for uh, the protagonist in in a mystery or thriller. So I think that I probably conceived a vague notion of who I wanted Matthew Rose to be before I I fleshed out the the plot. But I also have, uh, you know, kind of a weird thing that happens with my brain where I oftentimes have kind of uh, disparate ideas or different concepts for plots and different concepts for characters. And they might start in my mind as kind of like two separate things and then eventually meld together into the same project. And so even though I'll say that the character of Matthew Rose probably came first, I think I also had a notion that I wanted to write a mystery about uh, a fire or a couple of fires uh, in my hometown of Montana, and then eventually kind of the character or and the plot uh, fused together in my mind. So the aftermath of our military engagements in the Middle East is making its way into crime fiction, and I think that that's a good thing. Um, Matthew suffers from a traumatic brain injury, and then, at least in my opinion, is injured again. Uh, when he comes back and the Veterans Administration doesn't acknowledge the injury. And so that sets him on a course, and yet I I didn't find him particularly bitter. He seemed kind of um, uh, accepting of the situation. Yeah, I mean, it could be a situation where he just didn't have time for a lot of bitterness to set in because, uh, you know, he's got a, a, a lot of different... Uh, uh, obstacles to overcome as this book goes on, and so he's kept he's kept pretty busy. But he does certainly suffer from you know what's being called the the signature injury of of modern warfare, being the traumatic brain injury, um, partly because of the nature of of modern combat, because there's you know the there's explosions and there's various kinds of of improvised explosive devices that are more and more commonplace. Uh, in modern warfare, and also because uh, medical care has improved so much over the last several decades that you have injured soldiers who, during previous conflicts, almost certainly would have would have died, who are now you know being saved and being uh, 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 sent back to to their civilian lives, uh, while well, still with these lingering. Uh, Injuries, symptoms from these injuries definitely plaguing them. And so as a result of that, 
in turn, the civilian medical industry is now encountering these different kinds of injuries that, that it is having to figure out how to sort of deal with on the fly. So aside from writing about a character who had suffered this, this TBI and amnesia, um, I thought that it was interesting to mix in just a little bit of uh, you know, the difficulty of dealing with those kinds of, of injuries, both you know, in the Army and at, during civilian life. And as you alluded to, Matthew has a lot on his plate. You know, he's left the service, moved in with his mom in Florida. <clears throat> then he learns his uh, father has died, and he returns to his hometown in Montana to, <coughs> excuse me, to settle his affairs, his father's affairs. And, and he can barely rem <coughs> remember anything, including the woman who was his best friend when they were children, who then became his girlfriend when they were older. And I thought this was a pretty brilliant way of approaching a story because the reader gets to know Georgie, the friend slash girlfriend, who is now a reporter for the local paper as Matthew gets reacquainted with her. Yeah, um, well, thanks for saying that. Uh, the, the character of Georgie was certainly one um, that came to life for me as I was writing the book. Like, as I said earlier on, like the, the concept of Matthew Rose was kind of the first thing that came to me uh, while coming up with the, the concept of this book. But at the same time, I, I didn't want to have a character who was either so displaced from the world that he didn't have any friends or didn't have any relations. I wanted to, to have him grounded in this, this life, even though he himself couldn't really remember it. And you don't, I didn't, I wasn't really interested in having sort of like a lone wolf character out there, uh, you know, uh, raging against society on his own. I wanted to put him in some kind of context. And so uh, Georgie Porter became the character who ends up doing that. She's the other point of view character in the novel. So about half the chapters are written from Matthew's point of view and about half the chapters are written uh, from Georgie's point of view. And to be honest with you, uh, even though I knew that she was going to be in the novel and I knew that she was going to be a major part of the novel, she became, uh, you know, a huge necessity and a huge asset to have in the book, not only because I feel like her character really came together during the writing process, but also because Matthew, by necessity, has to be this kind of limited character because he doesn't remember his own life. He doesn't retain any of these formative experiences that, that we all have in our minds, which ultimately uh, make us the people that we are today. And so, you know, from a from the standpoint of, of informing the reader and the standpoint of, of you know, filling in details about his life and maybe even things that he doesn't remember but that the reader needs to know, that's definitely a big part of, of Georgie's role in the book is, is kind of you know, making everyone feel a little bit more fully realized because she does have that, that background that he doesn't remember. I've often wondered about the mechanics of that as a writer. So let's just go move into a little bit of a technicals. When you're writing uh, a story from two perspectives, as you did in this book, um, do you write all of Matthew's uh, story and then all of Georgie's story and then toggle them? Or do you switch back and forth as a writer? It's just one of my little geeky thoughts. Yeah, um, I switch back and forth just because, you know, uh, I don't necessarily have a full outline or chronology that I want to use for a book. And when I start, like uh, I have a general idea of where I want to start and a general idea of where I want to end and maybe some of the uh, you know high points along the way that I want to hit. 
But uh, when I first start with the first draft, I'm definitely still feeling my way in a lot of senses as just as the writer. And so, you know, I want to get to know the characters. I want to put the characters in situations that will be illuminating to me and, and ultimately hopefully make the final draft of the book and be illuminating to the reader as well. Uh, but I switch back and forth just because, you know, I want to have a sense of both of those characters and I want to have the freedom, frankly, as I go along of being able to switch point of views as necessary as, as is demanded by the plot itself. So, you know, I might have a development, in the plot of the book that I didn't necessarily foresee. And it, it might be something that necessarily has to be from the point of view of, of Georgie Porter. And so I want to be able to kind of like fill those things in as I go. So you let the narrative carry you along. In some ways, yeah, narrative or character. I mean, certainly there are, are instances where as you're plotting a book, since you have to make your characters feel feel like fully realized humans and you want to be true to their wants and desires and what you think they would do and how you think they would react to, to certain situations where, uh, you know, you, you come to a plot point or a plot question and you kind of have to ask yourself, what would this character do in this situation? Like, how would they react? What would be their next move? And so that uh, can point you down one path or another just in, in terms of narrative. So... Back to the story, you know, memory is a, is a tricky thing, as, as all humans know. And when he's back in his hometown, when, when Matthew's back in his hometown, he doesn't really remember much, uh, but glimmers of the past start to seep into his consciousness. He goes for a walk near the neighborhood where he lived as a child, and he comes upon a fire. And the fire is right in front of him, and the fire's also in the past. I, I loved that sort of dual reality thing that you did with that. So can you, can you talk about that process of the, that part of the novel and the process of, of trying to bring those two events that are, you know, uh, what, 15, 20 years apart? Together? Yeah. Yeah, uh, Matthew encounters a, a, a present-day fire on his first night back in town that ultimately results in the death of a local university student, uh, a woman who is somewhat mysterious in her own right as you, <laughs> you go along reading the book. And then, you know, during over the course of trying to begin to settle the affairs of his deceased father, he uncovers a second fire, which occurred a decade and a half previous to, to the story, but occurred close to where he grew up and uh, seems to have a connection to him, even though he can't fully explain what it is in the moment. And it's that the memory of that past fire that opens a little doorway lets in a little bit of light, initial light, I guess you would say, to Matthew kind of reclaiming his own past and remembering uh, his own his own uh, story, essentially. And so I was kind of taken with that notion that you could have these two kind of parallel storylines, one uh, that essentially is moving backward into the past and the other that's moving forward in real time into the future. And also, uh, I thought that it provided a good... Uh, narrative arc for both characters, because as you mentioned, Georgie Porter works for the local newspaper, and so she is is tasked with investigating this mysterious present day fire and the the death of this of this woman in the community. And at the same time, Matthew is trying to figure out who he is, and he is trying to work backward to kind of remember his own history. And so Georgie is pursuing the the narrative of the present day fire and Matthew is, is 
pursuing the narrative of the fire in the past. And so they are, they are both together, but also uh, on parallel investigations, on parallel narratives. And I thought that that was interesting to me as a, as a writer to try to do both of those things. And, you know, I had a thought as you were talking about uh, Matthew, and you didn't want your character to be a, a lone wolf. And in fact, Matthew very much wants to make connections. He's, he's inviting them. He, he doesn't want to remain in an amnesia state. He, he desperately wants to find his past. Uh, is that, you think that that's true or am, am I overthinking? No, I think absolutely. He's he's kind of desperate to make those connections and to figure out where he came from and to, to fill in the gaps in his own memory, as I think almost any of us would be. Uh, I think that, you know, maybe I was even a little bit naive when I started the writing process about what it would be like to write about a character who had these significant gaps in his own memory. Uh, and as I started to work my way through the book a little bit, I started to discover that that, you know, a character who doesn't remember where he came from or remember any of his past experiences can actually be a little bit of a challenge to write about. And, and that's yet another reason why Georgie Porter was such a necessity to the, to the novels that she's able to come in and fill in some of the things that Matthew doesn't remember. And so, you know, kind of as a writer, I, I came to this realization that we as, as human beings are really just an amalgamation of all of our previous experiences and all of our memories. And so for Matthew, not to have those touchstones, not to have those uh, previous experiences is certainly quite distressing to him. And, you know, on top of that, he quickly learns that there was some trauma in his previous life that he does not remember that, that set him on a path toward even joining the military in the first place. You know, at one point he was an outgoing kid and kind of like a, a on his way to being a star athlete and was outgoing and everybody liked him. And then the next thing you, that you knew, he was kind of like withdrawn, distance, distancing himself from his family and, and sort of dropping out of this previous life that he had had fashion for himself. And yet he doesn't remember why that happened. And none of the people around him seem to be able to tell him why that happened. So I think, you know, one of the, the central mysteries of this book is Matthew trying to figure out what it was uh, in his own past that, that put him on the path to, to where he is today. And so, yeah, I would say he's, he's desperate to figure all that stuff out. And he's desperate in, in learning about himself to kind of craft a way forward for himself. So you anticipated my next question, which is, you know, secrets and lies, which are the DNA of crime fiction, the building blocks of crime fiction. And as you said, Matthew is looking to find these gaps in his memory and, and reasons and, you know, sort of where, where the perimeters of his life were and where he should go from there. And, but he's not the only one because Georgie would also like to know why Matthew turned away from everything to which he was connected. So you, you talk about that parallel journey that they're on, but she's not only investigating the fire, she's helping him as much as she can to find the past and what went on and what caused him to have such a sort of break with his, with his uh, relatives and his friends. 
Yeah, it's kind of a mystery for everyone in, in the book. One of the one of the central conflicts of the novel, uh, and and especially as it pertains to Georgie, she's she's a big part of the book. The book is is half hers, half of it belongs to her. And so, you know, I was really interested in exploring her story, maybe as much as exploring Matthew's story, and you know, the the fallout from not only this shared childhood that they have, but also the fallout from uh, this unknown trauma that had occurred and and then, you know, the estrangement that it ca caused not only in terms of Matthew with his own family, but ultimately the, the catalyst for what splits up Matthew and Georgie. It's all kind of related and they're all trying to figure it out. And clearly it has affected everyone in their immediate friend group and, and, and family group. And so everyone is faced with those, uh, with those questions. Everyone is kind of trying to figure out what the heck happened. And so, yeah, in terms of, uh, in terms of like trying to plot a mystery or thriller was, it was at least in my opinion, kind of rich territory to try to get into as a writer. And the contrast between Georgie and Matthew was also significant, at least to me. Georgie has a good relationship with her parents, who are still married. We should mention that Matthew's parents were divorced. Um, <clears throat> as a matter of fact, uh, Georgie's mother is going to help Matthew with uh, her mother's a lawyer, and she's going to help Matthew um, investigate whether he can make a, you know, challenge the ruling that the VA made that his uh, injury is not related to combat. And, you know, find some other resources for him. And I found that a very interesting uh, contrast, too, because it looks like something Matthew is very much wants. And, and once again, because of his memory, can't understand why he doesn't have it. Yeah, I think one of the things that I found most interesting about these two characters is that they both shared so much of their past, and yet... They've both taken very different paths to where they are when the book finds them. You know, Georgie, things have gone pretty well for Georgie. She ended up going to college. She graduated. She is uh, working at the local newspaper and is sort of ambitious and is definitely just getting started with her career. But you feel like there are positive things at foot for her. Like, as you've mentioned, she has a good relationship with her parents. Like she's, uh, she's not making a ton of money, but it seems like she's on the path toward the rest of her life. Whereas Matthew feels completely displaced. He feels completely, um, I don't know if left behind by life is the right way to put it, but he, he just feels like he doesn't necessarily have a clear way forward. And so it was interesting for me as a writer to take these two characters who at one time shared this deep connection and who, you know, they almost could have been the same, the same person. They had the same experiences. They came from the same background. And yet, you know, this unknown thing occurred. And because of it, they ended up going on very different paths, Georgie being more positive and, and Matthew kind of uh, losing himself and losing his way. Um, you mentioned that you are a sports writer, and that's something I wanted to bring up because uh, I'm a former newspaper person. And, of course, the, the conventional wisdom about writers is that sports writers have to be better than the rest of us because <laughs> they're writing about something and trying to make something compelling where the ending is already known. So you're writing about either mixed martial arts or you're writing about a baseball game. The result is known. You know, you've heard it on the radio or, or you know, seen it on your feed. Um, so I just wanted to see how you reacted to that. 
Yeah, uh, well, I don't know if I would say we have to be better than everyone else, but that's <laughs> that's, that's more nice engaging. To hear. It's, yeah, it's definitely uh, uh, you know, especially if you come from a newspaper background, being a sports writer covering either local or national sports is a really unique position to have within journalism. The old cliche, of course, is that every night is election night when you're on the sports beat because uh, the sports happen in the evening and you are oftentimes on a really tight deadline to try to get your story written between the end of, you know, whatever athletic contest you watched and when the paper goes to bed. And so you have, you know, maybe 45 minutes or 60 minutes to try to uh, tell this story, whereas you said the the result may already be known by the time it, it comes out. And so you have this uh, task in front of you of, of trying to communicate this information to the reader to also be interesting, uh, you know, in many cases to be somewhat glib and to get it done extremely quickly. And, and so there is some pressure that goes along with that. And I think that, you know, just from a craft standpoint, you have to be able to establish this economy of language and this sort of speed of narrative, all the stuff that is kind of inherent to journalism, uh, but also in many ways crosses over to, to fiction. Uh, but with that pressure, I find that there is also sort of a freedom, because when you are writing on deadline as a journalist, you only have a certain amount of time to get the story done. And then whether you like it or not, whether you felt like you had done a perfect job, you have to ship that story to your editor, and it's going to come out in the newspaper the next morning, regardless of how you feel about it. So you don't really have time to labor over a, a clever turn of phrase or to uh, try to get a sentence exactly right. You just sort of have to do the best you can and and bang it out and then you know be done with it. Make some kind of psychological piece with the fact that it's going to have your name on it and everyone's going to read it. So uh, I think that there are a lot of similarities and differences between you know journalism and and fiction, but at the same time. In, at least in, in my writer's toolbox, I feel like the two things have complemented each other uh, uh, pretty well so far. Yeah, they're, they're, you can't have much hesitancy in pushing the send button when you know that they're holding the column open for you. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly, yeah. Um, I read in your press materials that you're working on another thriller set in Montana, but you're also planning to join the podcast diverse. Uh, with the true crime series called Death in the West. So I was wondering if you could uh, tell us a little bit about both of those endeavors. Sure. Uh, just in terms of the next novel, I have a couple of different projects that I'm trying to feel out at the moment. Uh, they are both contemporary Montana-based mysteries slash thrillers, and so I'm, I'm feeling my way a little bit through both of them, trying to figure out which one is going to feel like it has the most creative juice to me and to find out which story kind of grabs a hold of me uh, the most between the two. And, and I assume that one of them will assert itself as I go along and will be the one that I can't really stop thinking about or the one that I become obsessed with the way that you have to be obsessed with a story in order to, to do all of the work that it takes to, to write an entire book. Uh, and, and I hope that you know, that happens sooner rather than later because I do want to to, to publish another book, uh, you know, when I can. But, but at the same time, yeah, I, I do have this other project that I'm working on here uh, 
in, in Missoula along with my brother, who's a former magazine editor and uh, has two nonfiction books that he has written himself, and then two friends of ours, one of whom who is a PhD in history and the other one is another journalist here from, from Missoula. And so we are going to do this uh, history slash true crime serialized podcast called Death in the West that focuses uh, season by season on various historically significant unsolved uh, crimes in in and around the West. And so our first season is going to focus on the murder of a union organizer in Butte, Montana in, in 1917, and kind of the, the ramifications of that crime and how it helped shape not only the, the labor movement, but a lot of uh, free speech laws and uh, the concept of, of government oversight in the West over the next uh, century. And who knows, uh, you might find inspiration for your next novel beyond the one you're noodling right now. Oh, absolutely. I would hope so. All the inspiration I can get, I will take it. Thanks again, Chad, for joining us and talking about uh, The Blaze and about Death of the West. And I look forward to whatever happens, including the podcast. I'm definitely going to put that on my must-listen list. Oh, well, thanks so much. It was so much fun to be on. Thanks for having me.